0: All right, thank you so much for tuning in to Forward Thinking Founders. This is the podcast where we highlight undiscovered talent. We're scanning Y Combinator, Pioneer, Product Hunt, Twitter, Indie Hackers, all these different networks to find really interesting founders and interesting projects and startups. And we feature them on the podcast before you've probably heard of any of them. And what's great about this is you get to follow along on their journey as they become more and more successful and say, I knew them when. So thank you so much for tuning in to Forward Thinking Founders, and let's get into our next founder you haven't heard of, but you will. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Jack Altman. Who is the co-founder and CEO of Lattice? Jack, welcome to the show. How's it going?
1: It's going well and thanks so much for having me. Excited to uh, chat with you. It's been a long time coming and been looking forward.
0: Yeah, no worries. I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, you know, it's the so many things that happened with Lattice in the last year. I feel like there's just so much more to talk about, which is exciting. To start, for people that don't know what you're working on or who you are or what you're building, can you give everyone an idea of what Lattice is?
1: Yeah, Lattice is HR software, and specifically, it's performance management and employee engagement software. So we do things like performance reviews, we help you manage employee manager one-on-ones, track and set your goals, give continuous feedback, you can run engagement surveys, you can run pulse surveys, we've got an org chart. Um, So it's basically products around how do you manage uh, the people at your company, how do you give infrastructure to your managers to do their jobs well.
0: So something that interests me a ton about this space and people management is, um, you know, when I go to your website, I see that it's very analytical. You have a lot of tools that you've built out that help, you know, managers do their job and CEOs do their job. Um, I'd love to hear, for, first off, what are some of the the features or products that you built within Lattice? And then second, um, I would love to hear kind of the things that you've learned um, while building, you know, software for for people who are malleable and emotional and, and have good days and bad days that change every day like what's it been like building software for things that, that change which is different from you know straight up data
1: yeah and i can give you a little chronology too so today lattice is about 150 employees with a little under 2,000 customers um, we started the company in late 2015 and it sort of incrementally grown our product suite and of course our team from there when we first got started we were building a tool to track OKRs and uh, employee one-on-ones. And then throughout the course of that first year, we also added performance reviews and feedback. And so what we started with was a suite of continuous performance management products. And the change in the world that was happening was that companies were moving from traditional hierarchical once-a-year performance reviews where really the company was the customer of that product. It was a way to evaluate employees and to see who should get, a raise and who should get let go. And it was a sort of stressful experience for the company. And it was an extremely stressful experience for the employee. Um, and the change we saw in the world was that people were flipping the script and making the employee the customer of the performance review. And so what that means is they were trying to take that process and make it one that served the employee's growth and their engagement and their happiness. Um, ways that you can get feedback that make that employee grow, not just so that you can document their performance. And we saw that change happening. We wanted to build a suite of tools for that. And what we thought that would look like was more frequent lighter weight performance review that was structured, paired with ad hoc anytime feedback, one-on-ones, agile goals, um, and that sort of system. And that's what we built for. So that was the first phase. And then over time, we realized that that same flip of the script from company-centric to employee-centric was happening in all sorts of HR practices. And the second one that we identified was employee engagement. And really what that means from a software perspective is surveys. And it's become popular for companies to run surveys about how their employees are feeling in recent years, and it's become popular for good reason. Um, It's sort of like asking your customers, do they like your product? Are they getting value from your service? this is the same thing with your employees. Are they enjoying their experience? Are they it to others? Do they feel supported by their manager? And we saw that trend happening too. And we thought, well, if we can combine performance management data, which tells you, how are you doing? Are you reaching your goals? Are you thriving in your role? With employee engagement data, how are you feeling? Do you, you know, are you bringing your best to work? Do you feel connected to your manager? By combining that, uh, those sets of, inputs, we would be able to see all sorts of insights, things like, are my top performing employees engaged? Or if I get lots of one-on-ones and feedback, does that change how I accomplish my goals or how I feel at work? And so the combination of these products over time is what led us to what you described originally of, um, you know, analytical looking site and product where we're building towards a vision where um, not only are all of these practices modernized and made employee friendly and productive for the, uh, for the employees, but for the admins and leaders of the company, they get visibility and analytics that they'd never had before. Um, and now as time goes on, we just continue to look to add to that suite and um, you know, build services that are valuable for all sorts of touch points in the employee journey, and then sort of coagulate it back into, into those kind of insights.
0: So I think that with a lot of products, um, you know, a lot of advice is, you know, talk to your users to to figure out what you need to build. Um, but what's interesting about what you've built with Lattice is I am guessing you use Lattice within your own company as well. Um, so what has been the dynamic with product development with it, with like knowing what you need to build just by being a user? and talking externally to people that are your users or future users, do you even need to talk to outside people or um, what's that dynamic with product development? I'd love to know.
1: It's a really thoughtful question. Um, and it is totally true that t- Lattice today is a perfect Lattice customer. When we were first getting started, when we were two and then six and then you know, 12 people, we were, we were not really a good Lattice customer at that point. You don't really need a performance management system when you're small. Um, but as we crossed 50, 100, 150 employees, we did become a perfect Lattice user. And in terms of connecting that to product development, I think you can use it, but you have to be careful. Um, a lot of startups, even out of the get-go, are their own customer. So there's a lot of two-person companies that offer a service that works great for two-person companies. Um, so so some people actually feel this dynamic on day one. I think the the, the key is to use it for its advantages, but not get caught in the traps. And so the advantages are that you can, in many cases, short circuit the normal product development cycle because you are yourself a user. But the trap is forgetting that you're just one customer and you, you are a customer who cares deeply about your problem, of course, but you're still just one customer. And if you were going out and doing customer interviews to try to find what products the market wanted or how they were enjoying your products, you would never think to just ask one. And so even though you're a very special customer, the key is to remember that you're just one and it's no substitute for customer research.
0: So. Yeah, that's a great answer and a perspective I haven't thought about, but it's, you know, total, totally correct. So I appreciate that. Um, So, you know, ever since you started, uh, started Lattice, you know, this company, you, you've grown, as you've mentioned, and you've also raised um, a good amount of venture capital and it, it kind of been on a good track. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit um, about kind of shifting the conversation a, a little to what it's been like fundraising for Lattice, um, but specifically focusing on um, now that you've raised, I, I believe it was around, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe around $50 million um what are some of the things that looking back on twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen you think you could have thought about differently to put yourself maybe in like a better position today obviously there's always woulda, could have but I'm curious if like you were talking to yourself you know five years ago what are some of the things you would tell them about fundraising
1: yeah it's it's a good question i mean um, and to the to the point of woulda, could have should have it's it's really hard to try to go back and rewrite the history on a lot of these things. And, you know, the way that you raise the rounds does end up impacting so much. So before sharing any of these thoughts, a big caveat is that on the whole, I think um, it worked out well enough for us. And I don't think anybody ever perfectly optimizes their fundraising, but the big stuff we got right enough, which was that we got great partners on the cap table. We had enough cash to, um, never have to think too short term, uh, and to be able to grow the business. Um, and we, you know, we we sort of never it never fundraising has never been um, something that created a huge problem for us. And that's just to start something I'm grateful for. So I think if there were if there are learnings that I would go back and tell myself, um, there'd probably be two for the very early stage. Um, the first is it's very tempting to optimize for valuation and for capital raised early on. Um, and you always hear the advice that, you know, you should pick the right investor and it's like a marriage and you'll be working with these people for a very long time. Um, and I, I think it's, it's easy to ignore that advice, but that particular piece of advice is so right. I think in the case that your startup does work, it, everything's fine. It doesn't matter if you diluted a few extra points um, what really matters is the binary outcome of did you make it work or not. And something that Vinod Kosel said, which I think is quite true, is that there's there's a ton of investors who don't add value and those are fine. What you really want to avoid is the investors who do harm, the investors who think they're running your company or who put their, you know, who who try to push their weight around or who create real headaches for founders. I think a lot of times the thing that can stress founders out the most is when they have a super toxic board member or just investor who's trying to you know do damage. So the very first thing to know is that just, just avoiding problematic investors is, is a huge win. But then there is this small segment of investors um, who can properly add value, um, who can cause entrepreneurs to think a little bit differently, who can push you when you need a push and can make you feel better when you need to feel better. Um, who can add value through introductions and through their network, who have seen a story unfold in many ways and don't overly pattern match it to you, but can share wisdom that you don't have access to otherwise. And so the number one thing is to avoid those problem investors. And if you can to find one or two, you know, among your allocation of investors who really can add value to you and who you really are excited to, be with on that full journey, either as a board member or a close advisor. Um, And we were sort of lucky to get those early on. We haven't had any investors who have caused us uh, any grief. And we've had a lot of investors who have actually been really helpful. Um, You know, Miles Grimshaw from Thrive, who joined our board uh, early on, but also led our seed round from the get-go, has been a super close confidant and a total partner to the business. and that was a really lucky thing for us. Um, another example is Chris Howard, uh, who also was one of our very first investors, and has been a huge moral support. He's been there for a steady hand. He's been guidance. So, um, some of those great investors that you get early on can add huge value. So, lesson one is don't overoptimize on the price or the sexiness of that round, and really give weight to avoiding bad investors and to finding the great ones. The other point, and this is easy to say, when it went well. So I'm a little hesitant, but um, it is a thing that happens often, which is that um, you know, and this this was in 2016, but this happens, you know, even more now. Maybe now in a post coronavirus world, it's a little bit different. But seed rounds have gotten huge, and so you know, we raised 2.8 million dollars in our seed round. Um, companies today, you'll often see raising five, six million dollars, and the truth is you don't really need that much cash typically to find product market fit and overrate, you know, it was okay for us to raise 2.8, but looking back, we didn't need most of that. We probably needed 1 million. And, you know, looking back to earlier in this last cycle and certainly historically seed rounds were way smaller than this. And certainly now these $5 million rounds that you see is, you know, historically that's a series A. Um, But The the large early rounds can both be unnecessarily dilutive because it's, you know, it's the most expensive capital you'll ever raise from an equity perspective. And they can also remove the sense of urgency and scarcity that drives innovation and focus. And so I think if I were to do it again, I probably would have raised a little bit less early on and then save all that raising for once you have product market fit and you're really, you know, going big on sales and marketing and, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, those are two really really good points. I have a follow up question on your first one. So um, obviously, you know, uh, most founders, if not all founders, want to work with the best VCs they can, and the VCs, you know, they want to win every deal that they want to win, right? So they're not gonna on purpose show a side to them that might be negative. Um, So if you were talking to a founder, even let's say they were just start, even me, like I'll start this company one day, right? And like, what would you tell that person um, like what to look for in a partner or more so like how to spot the partners that might be, um, you know, a strain or negative um, before the term sheet is signed? Is there a way to spot them? Yeah, so it's a it's a great question. Um,
1: And I'll give a short answer that is obvious and then I'll go a little bit longer into something that I think is maybe like, you know, a more unique thing to focus on. The the obvious answer is trust your gut and your human instincts. Like I think most of us have a spidey sense for when somebody is talking to us in a way that doesn't feel quite right or um, when things that they're saying aren't quite adding up or, uh, you know, just the, the feel that we get when we talk to them is wrong. And, you know, this might come across in an investor, you know, being overly, you know, braggadocious about prior investments that when you, Really look back, you realize there are maybe half truths, or maybe it's an investor who's telling you that you know once they invest, it's really important to do this way, and they tell you they proudly tell you a story about how they told one of one of you know quote unquote their founders to to do X Y or Z. Um, so when you get signals that either that either something that they're representing isn't deeply you know true or full of integrity, or if they're giving you the sense that they view their job as the boss of the founder. I think those are probably some, some indicators that, you know, that there might be more beneath the surface there too. So that, those are a couple of things I'd look out for. I think the biggest thing though, that so few founders do is references and it's nothing will give you the truth better than references of portfolio founders that they've worked with and particularly portfolio founders that they've worked with when things went poorly. I think It's easy for everybody to be, you know, a cheerleader and a supporter when things are going well. And I think, you know, the, the proverbial teeth kind of come out when things are not going well. Or the unbelievable support and leadership uh, comes out when things aren't going well. And so um, talking to founders' references and asking real questions to understand what do they like to work with in regular times, in good times, and in bad times is super important. And by the way, this is also, I think, one of the most important tools for hiring well. You know, you do a recruiting process where you know, maybe you'll spend five hours with a candidate, 10 hours if it's, you know, if you're lucky, but you can't possibly compare with someone who's worked with, uh, worked with that person for years. And so really good references is a super important skill to develop as you know, a
0: manager and a recruiter just as much as it is a fundraiser. then I have one last question on that point, and then we'll move on to to another kind of area. Uh, So something that I am culprit of, and I'm sure a lot of founders are, are that, you know, if if we get the shot to, let's say we're in an accelerator or something, and we see 100 VCs we could request interest to, I would request interest to, you know, Greylock, Andreessen Horowitz, you know, uh, like Thrive, these top ones, Um, but sometimes, you know, founders don't have access to these, these, these really well-known firms. So, um, so I'm kind of curious for the founders that may not be like in San Francisco or New York, um, uh, or even like me, like I'm in Arizona, the people listening in Utah and the Wyoming, et cetera. Is it important to try to get one of those brand name VCs if they're a good partner or are there, can there be VCs that are local VCs that seem like good partners that aren't tapped into like the greater ecosystem that they should go with um you do do, i guess do you have a thought on brand name versus local but good for seed specifically
1: it's a totally great question there's a lot to unpack in that i think there there is a bias from these firms to invest in companies in their area so you will see more of these companies investing in san francisco new york um where they're close to so that doesn't mean that they'll never invest in companies in Arizona, but it's it it definitely is a disadvantage. Um, that said, a lot of these co- investors are looking to diversify outside, and even if you are in a network where you don't have direct access, um, most great VCs will still take cold emails. And I think you know this notion that it has to be a warm email is one that a small number of investors um, live by, but I think that gets out-competed by investors who are willing and able to, you know, take cold emails because a lot of the great entrepreneurs when they get started don't have that access. They're outsiders. They're not part of the system. And, you know, there's so many stories of some of the greatest companies, you know, of, of all time, you know, companies like Airbnb or Pinterest who weren't able to raise that easily early on. And the investors who are able to dig in and not just, go with the herd and hop into the hot round that everybody wants to be part of, I think we will do really well. And so I do think it's possible. Um, on your last question about whether it's important to be you know, aligned with investors who are in the ecosystem or not, um, I will say that there is something special about quote unquote Silicon Valley, not the location, but the Silicon Valley mindset that is uniquely conducive to building companies. I think that there's a lot of unwritten rules and norms and understandings that that make it possible that you know for example that there's that you don't put egregious terms in startup financings because they can be owners to the company and investors make their money on the upside so you know a, an example that you'll commonly see is non silicon valley investors really care about their downside protection silicon valley investors don't you know, overly focus on that and are more thinking, where am I gonna get my 100X? And it turns out that that's much better and safer for startups, it's much better for those investors. And there are a bunch of little examples of things like this where the whole ecosystem is geared towards startups uh, in a way that's really favorable in, you know, Silicon Valley, as it were. That said, it's all online now. And so Silicon Valley as a concept now it exists everywhere. And so I think to the extent that you find a local investor who is for all intents and purposes a Silicon Valley minded firm who happens to be in Arizona, I think that's a great thing. Um, I also think that you know being in different geographies leads a lot of firms and companies to think different and to not just, you know, go in the echo chamber that, that is Silicon Valley, you know, proper geographically. And so I think there's some advantages too. So th- those, are, those, those are my thoughts on it there? It's good to find those great investors, but you don't need just those five names. There's you know, hundreds of great investors. Um, you can still get great investors through cold emails and it's important to have that Silicon Valley mindset, but it doesn't have to actually be in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned towards the end that it's all online now. Um, it's just tapping into the network um, because like I physically live in Phoenix, but because of you know some of my previous investors and uh, um, and uh, the company I work for now, which is a YC company and and uh, the podcast, I like to see both sides. Like I live in Phoenix, but I virtually live in San Francisco. and I do kind of see the echo chamber, but I also live outside of it. So it does give me a very unique perspective on things to allow me to create you know my own uh, opinions on on topics and tech. So I totally agree with that. A couple more questions, and, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. So, I uh, tweeted um, just before this uh, we we went on uh, if anyone had any questions uh, for you, and I got a a few good ones that I'm also curious about. Um, the first one. Is from Keith Wasserman, and uh, he's wondering uh, um, what's it like being a dad. You, you, you're a new dad. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I'd love to hear kind of how has that been, and and what's life like, and uh, as a CEO and as a father and as a family. You know, just what, what's that like? So he's three months old now, and it's funny
1: because I talk to my non-parent friends, and I'll be like, how's you know how's quarantine treating you? So like I'm meditating and I'm exercising and I'm reading books and watching Netflix and, you know, it's hard, but you know, I'm getting by and I'm like, wow, that is not my experience. Um, I'm having a, you know, a great time getting all this extra, uh, this extra time with, with Liam, but it's definitely hard, you know, as a parent who is it, you know, at home all day trying to do not getting just a full-time job, but for many of us, you know, things have gotten, crazier, or more intense, or busier in various different ways, Um, while also then in your free hours trying to, you know, take care of a baby, and, um, you know, now my wife is slowly getting back to work. She's a um, nurse practitioner, and so she's doing her calls over Zoom for the most part, but, um, you know, that balancing all of that is, it's tricky, and it builds a lot of empathy for me for, you know, so many people right now who've got it really hard, I think, relatively speaking, we've got it easy here and we're all doing fine. And, you know, it's 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 a challenge, but it it reminds me that this experience of of quarantines is really different for different people. And so trying to be mindful and sensitive to that is, you know, I work with different employees and customers and partners and friends and knowing that this is easy for some people and it's really hard for others, I think, is is a thing. But overall being a father is amazing and it's just, you know, it's it is a it's an awe inspiring journey so far, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's making me reflect on how different this experience is for different people.
0: Yeah. It, it I, I totally agree with that. And that effort, like, you know, for me, like I have a, my, I'm, I'm very lucky for my job is secure. I'm, I'm happy. Like I, I, you know, things like that, that people on the total opposite side of the spectrum that lost their job, maybe they have coronavirus and it, just, it does make you think and make you appreciate what you have. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, so w- one more question on, the, on that front, specifically actually the quarantine, the coronavirus, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So you've tweeted a couple of times about what life will be like after we get out of quarantine and after mm-hmm. the coronavirus is done. Um, and I just kind of would love your thoughts. What do you think? Um, I, you can go high level or specific to Lattice. You know, either way is fine with me. But what, is, what do you think life looks like after this is all over, after we spent months on the Internet with all these businesses shut down, can you pre- do you have any predictions on what life will look like post coronavirus?
1: Um, I can try, but I have you know no idea like everybody else. Um, the I think a big um, input to what it's like depends on how long this goes. I think the the longer this goes, the longer the snapback to reality will be, um, both because you know, each month that goes by increases the sort of economic destruction left in the wake by you know, some sort of exponen- exponential function. And so it'll take more time to put the pieces of, of that puzzle back together. And then also because the the longer it lasts, the deeper the, you know, the scar will be. And the scar is not just bad, but it is going to change people. It will change the way people behave. And do they want to go to concerts? And are they comfortable shaking hands? And do they Realize that they like remote work and does it change the way they want to educate their children? And it's it's forcing such an immediate and all-encompassing shakeup in behaviors. And if people if people adapt to new norms, which they will, humans are infinitely adaptable. Um, we won't just go back to everything. So there will be behavioral norms that'll change too. Um my my hope is that obviously this is everybody's hope, but my hope is that. We have enough in place in terms of testing and tracing and um, you know therapies for the virus you know beat before a vaccine and um, I hope there's enough that we're able to after we sort of do the hammer of the hammer in the dance and after we you know use this you know really blunt instrument of quarantine to keep caseloads down that while that's happening we've built enough of, of these other uh, elements that let us turn the economy back on slowly and go back to work, you know, albeit in modified states and with some restrictions on how we behave and whatnot. Um, so that that's my sincere hope is that that happens, you know, over over the summer. But that you know, I think there's a very real possibility this lasts longer than anybody thinks, and there's so many curveballs that could come out. So um, it's really it's really hard to guess. Um, yeah. On the behavior side and the working style side, I do think that um, and one thing I have you know, realized is that some people obviously hate working from home, but a large number of people kind of like it. And I think there will be some hybrid that we'll go back to where a lot more companies will be much more tolerant and even encouraging of people spending a certain amount of time working from home because there is real value to it. Um, you don't have to commute. You can have longer periods of focus time. You can get errands in your life or chores in your life done without them preventing you from working. You can you know, throw your laundry in and keep working. And you, know, you don't have to take that time off. Like there are, real, there are real values to it. And so I, I suspect that there will be some increase due to this that doesn't just you know, last for a month, but endures where people will be, uh, will think differently about working from home. Um, I also think there'll be some changes where, you know, people realize that they were flying across the country or internationally to go do a business meeting. And they've learned during, you know, this quarantine that a zoom call is nearly as effective and, you know, saves them multiple days and thousands of dollars. And um, so I just think that video conferencing for, you know, for business purposes and, you know, needing to go be face to face and, you know, Shake hands. I I just I believe that people will see that that trade doesn't make as much sense. So there will be changes like that too.
0: I'm kind of interested to know the changes within you just mentioned um, within raising capital and where at what point does that make a difference? Like, can you raise a pre-seed round on Zoom? Can you do a seed round? What about an A? Like, maybe not, but maybe you know, it's just that that whole thing is interesting to me. Um, so the 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 last question, or the second to last question I have, this is the same question I ask every guest is, if you look out uh, for Lattice a decade from now, or or, uh, however long you want to look out, what would you say is the big vision? What are you building towards? And um, yeah, like if it gets as big as it can get, you know, what would it look like then if you had to dream?
1: I think that there's all of these uh, software markets, certainly HR included, tend to breathe in these waves of pollutions and then consolidation. And we've been living in a point solution world where the last generation of HR products was the one that brought things onto the cloud. And, you know, Workday came online and took away a lot of share from PeopleSoft and, you know, basically brought HR into uh, the cloud. And a lot of the providers for smaller businesses did the same. And, and now in the last Five or eight years, what you've been seeing in HR is is a modernization of the new way of work, and so you see all these point solutions that have updated the uh, the t- their tools to address the way that people work, and so that's true for performance and engagement and learning and onboarding and compensation and so many products. And so I think I think the journey for Lattice is that um, over time, not only do we keep innovating on our core, which is performance and engagement, but that we also build out into these other parts of the employee journey. So how does my career grow and how do I, as a manager, make sure that I'm tracking and working with my employees as they're building their careers? How do I make sure that I'm paying people fairly relative to the market and their performance and all of that? Um, How do I make sure that employees have a really wonderful, you know, first 30 days at the company, first 90 days at the company, how do I make sure that when an employee leaves, we understand why and we're updating our culture accordingly? Um, all of those sorts of things, I think, are which are the future of management and work, I think Lattice can both um, you know, lead the charge on and support. And so that's, that's, that's what I hope for us.
0: That's, that's incredible. And and to make that happen, you'll need, you know, help from all sorts of people like employees, you know, maybe more investors, customers, and also you got the Forward Thinking Founders community that is listening that knows the question is coming. So for the final question of the podcast, how can we help you? Is there an ask that you have, whether it's for recruiting, for social media, for sales, that that someone listening can help you out with? How can the Forward Thinking Founders community help you?
1: I honestly think the best thing that that a community of founders could do for Lattice would be to keep carrying the torch of this new style of work and management. I think Lattice is predicated on the belief that the future of how companies are built is one that is empathetic and employee-centric and focused on career growth and focused on meaningful work experiences and not sort of the old way of doing work where humans are resources and where you're sort of acting ruthlessly to optimized for the company value and not assuming that, you know, you need to necessarily invest in employees. And so I think if the next generation of founders builds their companies that way, that will be a world in which Lattice thrives. So that's, that is probably the best, that could, the best thing that could
0: happen. I love that. Well, Jack, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I wish, wish you best of luck moving forward with your company and making your vision happen.
1: Sounds good. Thank you so much again for having me
0: okay thank you everyone for tuning into that episode i hope you really enjoyed it and luckily there's another one coming up real soon but before then i have a couple things to tell you first if you're listening to this and you think you're working on something cool or you think you're smart hit me up on twitter i am at matt underscore sherman and that is matt with one t so hit me up shoot me a dm and I'm happy to check out what you're working on. And maybe we can get you on the pod. But at the very least, I'm happy to give you feedback on your product or project or startup. Lastly, if you can please rate this podcast in the iTunes store, that would be awesome. I'm trying to get up in the rankings so more people can discover these awesome founders. And the only way to do that or one of the ways to do that is growing with ranking. So if you like what you're listening to, please just go on to the iTunes store. Give it five stars or four, you know, or three. I'm not going to tell you what to give, but just tell whatever I deserve. You should rate that. With that, I'm signing off. See you next time. Bye.